Welcome to Lessons for Life, where we seek to learn, love, and live the Word of God. Now, here is James Long Jr. Turn in your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. Uh, we begin a new series. We just finished uh, our expositions in the book of Daniel, and now we are looking about a hundred years after uh, the return of the exiles and under Cyrus, in about 100 years later. Here's the word of the Lord. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are scattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. This is God's sufficient, eternal, authoritative, life-giving, and life-changing word. Would you pray with me? Well, that's an interesting start to a passage, Lord. You talk about your love, but then you talk about your hatred. You talk about those that are your chosen, and then you talk about those that have been rejected. You talk about your strong judgment, and then you end it with a proclamation and praise for your name. Father, this is an old message, but it is a modern message. It's a contemporary message, Lord. There's so many things in this book of Malachi that, Lord willing, we are going to hear from you. Father, I pray that we wouldn't just hear it as a distant place in a distant time, but I pray that we would hear your counsel even today. I pray that you would do a work in our lives. I pray that you would do a work through our lives. I pray that we would see your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be filled by your spirit. I pray that we'd be led by your word. And I pray that we would hear that you love us and that we would be representing you. In in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, the book of Malachi is a very small book. It is the last book. So if you had a problem finding it, you just go to the New Testament of Matthew and you just go back one book. That's the very last of the Old Testament writers. He is not the last of the Old Testament prophets. We find that John the Baptist in the New Testament is the last of the Old Testament prophets. But Malachi is the last book written in the Old Testament. And Malachi, as I said, was written approximately a hundred years after the people had returned from exile. Now, when we were studying Daniel, we had seen that the people were taken into exile through Nebuchadnezzar, and they were taken away to Babylon. 
And they were in Babylon for approximately 70 years. And then that God brought them out and brought them back to their land, back to their home. And they got an opportunity not only come back to their city, but to also rebuild their temple. It was a time where there was great joy and hope. And all the promises that they had heard in scripture, all the promises that they had heard, they expected those promises to be fulfilled immediately. They expected the power of God in their lives. They expected the privilege of God in their lives. They expected the presence of God, the Shekinah glory to come down again. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they just didn't see it. And what was happening with these people is that they found themselves getting apathetic. They got somewhat indifferent. They would do the religious things, but they lacked a power and passion in their lives. So that's why I call this a modern message. That's why I call it a contemporary message. What I think you're going to hear from the book of Malachi is that it is contemporary in the fact that it is for you today. It is for us today. I think what you're going to hear from the book of Malachi is that it's a convicting message. There are six messages that God is going to say to his people. And he is going to, there's a pattern that will happen in the book. God will make a pronouncement. The people will rebut it or they will go against it and reject it. And then God will go back and make a proclamation. And so what we will see is that God, even here, as I just read, God will make a proclamation that I love you. The people will rebut it. And then God will come back and explain it. I want you to think about the time that these people are growing up in or that they are in. It's a time of moral corruption and spiritual apathy. It's a time where there were violations of the law of God. Malachi is writing to these returning exiles, and as he's writing to them, he's reminding them of the deep love of God. He's reminding them of the patience of God. He is reminding them of the worship of God. He is reminding them of the faithfulness of God to them. In spite of what they could see, what he is saying is, I am here for you. I wonder about our country and I wonder about our time today as we seem to be in a period of spiritual decline. We seem to be in a malaise. It seems like everything that is happening around us is distorting our vision. It is taking our vision away from the worship of God. That is what is happening in Malachi's time. So as you hear Malachi, I want you to hear these words. I want you to hear these words because these are words not just written to the people of Judah. These are words written to you today. Look here what it says. It says, an oracle of the word of God. An oracle of the word of God. God is going to be making a statement uh, in this book, and he's going to be making a statement right here. Jump with me to Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. I want you to see the second statement that God is going to make. In uh, Malachi chapter 1 verse 6, it says, A son honors his father and a servant his masters. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how do we despise your name? 
Jump with me to Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts them in favor in your hand. But you say, why does he not? They looked at their worship and he's saying that their worship is profane. It's not following through. He talked about later on, he talked about their marriages where they are rejecting each other. He talks about their robbing of God and not giving to him. He talks about the fact that they are failing to honor him in their hard hearts, and in doing so, they've put God to the test. Look here in verse chapter 3, verse 13. It says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is in vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Uh, One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 73, and in that psalm, Asaph is looking at the people of his day, and he's saying they seem to be prospering, and they seem to be doing so well, and something doesn't seem to be right. I am honoring you. I am worshiping you. They're prospering. I am failing. Maybe you feel that way today. So I want you to think about this, that God is writing this message to give you hope. God is writing this message to give you confidence. God is writing this message to remind you that he has not changed. These people are struggling financially. These people are struggling relationally. These people are struggling politically. These people are struggling morally. And they are hearing God say in this opening verse that God loves them, but they just don't see it. They don't hear it. They don't feel it. They don't experience it. Have you felt that way today? And what they're open to do is to grumble. They're open to complain. They're open to accuse. And what has happened at the depth of their lives is that they've gotten distracted from God. They find themselves indifferent towards God. They have lacked gratitude towards God, and they have forgotten his promises. Perhaps that's you. So let's look through this passage and try to learn what God says as he opens this passage to us. The oracle of the word of the Lord comes to Israel. Now, I don't know if your version says this, but some versions say the burden of the word of the Lord. And it's interesting that when you get into a pulpit, when someone gets into a pulpit on a Sunday morning, there is a heavy burden that is placed upon the one that is preaching. That as we stand in the pulpit, in essence, we are saying, thus says the Lord. We are in essence standing before you as God's voice for you. We are preaching God's word out to you. There is a heavy burden that is upon those that preach every morning, every Sunday morning. And Malachi begins by saying, I have an oracle. I have a burden that is so heavy upon me right now. It is weighty. There's so many people that take God's word and take preaching of God's word as theater and Sunday mornings. What they do is they take it for granted. It's like a ho-hum attitude. They find themselves, they take it light and easy. It's not. There's no sense of urgency. There's no sense of seriousness in some people's preaching today. They, it's a show. It's mockery. It's a comedy festival. I am putting on an act as the person stands in the pulpit. But this is not theater, Malachi says. There's a heavy burden that awaits him as he is preaching God's word, because he is going to, and we are going to be held under greater judgment than you 
as we preach this word and Malachi is. But there's a, there's a second element of the burden that I want you to think about. The second element of the burden is this, that as I preach God's word, I know that some of you will hear God's word. Some of you believe it and will go yes and amen, and there are some of you that will hear God's word and will reject it. That's a heavy burden for a pastor. As we stand out and look at a congregation of people that we care about and love, they hear the good news of the gospel, they hear the good news of truth, they hear of their sin and their need for Christ, and they reject the message of hope. It's a heavy burden. And as Malachi is writing, and as the Old Testament prophets are writing, they hear God's word, they speak God's word, and they have heard from God that your people probably will not hear you. It's an oracle of the word of God. I call this a sober responsibility. It is. It's an urgent message from God. God has laid a heavy burden upon Malachi, and Malachi is called to preach the word of God. This word is preached to Israel. If you remember, there were 12 tribes originally, 10 tribes to the north, two tribes to the south, Judah and the half-tribe of Benjamin. And those two tribes to the, the ten tribes have disappeared and the two tribes to the south were the ones that had gone into bondage. And now they have come back. And Malachi is writing. I find it interesting that Malachi, we don't hear his name ever written outside of his book ever again. Malachi, he, he's not anything special in essence in the fact that many people are going to remember his name. They don't. Malachi actually literally means my messenger. And it's interesting that I believe that he is not highlighted here in any other portion of scripture because it's the message that he is called to preach, not the messenger himself. And that's true. That every person that stands in a pulpit, it's not about us that stand in the pulpit, it's about the message that we are preaching. So Malachi is saying, I've got a heavy burden. I need to preach the word of the Lord to God's people and I am just simply God's messenger. This is a sober responsibility. Second, I want you to see that this is a steadfast love of God. In verse 2, he says this, I have loved you. God professes his love to his people. I love this passage in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from who? God and whosoever loves is born of God and knows God and anyone who does not know love does not know God because God is love and in this the love of God is made manifest among us that God sent his son into the world that we might live through him in this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation and the appeasement for our sin beloved if god so loved us we ought to love one another there is probably no word in the english language that has been gutted of its depth and its meaning as the word love we've cheapened that word to get today we use it as an easy phrase. It's superficial. We talk about it in superficial ways. We speak of love in careless ways. We speak of love in doing idolatrous acts. We speak of love in doing acts of immorality. We speak of love in doing acts of sin, and it's not real love. The love that we profess today lacks depth. It lacks meaning. We say that we love someone, yet we think terrible thoughts about them. 
We say that we love someone, but we speak appalling words about them or to them. We say that we love someone, but we act in horrendous ways towards them. Is that love? It really isn't. Scripture tells us that Christians are supposed to demonstrate the love that they have been loved by God in their lives and then through their lives. It's, it's not natural for us in our sinful nature to love. That love must come from God as God indwells you, then he works through you. God, as R.C. Sproul says is this, is seen as the fountain. He is seen as the foundation. He is seen as the source of all true love. See, what real love is, is that God lives in you and then loves through you. You know, many in the world have degraded the love of God. Many in the world have focused on maybe the characteristic of love and minimized all of God's other characteristics. They maximized God's love and they minimized his justice. They minimized his holiness. They minimized his wrath. But that's not the God of the Bible. Humanity has stripped away the holiness of God. And when they do that, they diminish God's justice and then God's righteousness. They see God in parts, partly love and partly just and partly holy and partly right and partly faithful, but that's not him, that's us. God is who he is in totality. So when God is totally loving, God is totally holy, God is totally just, it's not one single attribute, but it's all of his attributes in one. And when you ultimately hold on to one attribute, you actually minimize it and you create a God of your own mind and not the biblical God. I want you to think of God's love in this. God's love for you is eternal. Amazingly, that God's love for you goes beyond space and time. God's love for you is eternal in the fact that he has no beginning. He has no end. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed and will always exist. And their love for each other and then their love for you has always been there. Eternal love for those who have chosen, who have been chosen in him. Scripture tells us that before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon his children, that the triune God, that the Father had planned your salvation, the Son had provided for your salvation on the cross, and the Holy Spirit is the pledge of your salvation. This triune God comes together to love you, love you. It's all of this is by grace. And all of this is done in love. God's love for you is an eternal and everlasting love. But God's love for you is a faith. So many of us claim to love one another, and that love is fickle. That love comes here and goes. We say we love them, and then we act in such unloving ways. But what I can tell you is this, that the love that God has for you is a steadfast, faithful, consistent, covenantal love. He does not change. There are so many of us that have experienced such great hurts by others. Those who have supposedly loved us, those who have supposedly professed faith in us or care for us, have hurt us and betrayed us so deeply. Maybe you've gone through that. And as you're perhaps going through that right now, you're experiencing this pain and this hurt. And what we have a tendency to do is to magnify the hurt, to magnify the pain. And we see our lives as deficient and we miss the glory of God. We miss the greatness of God and we miss his love for you and for me. The love of God is most steadfast love that you will ever experience in this world. I love Ephesians chapter one. 
Hold your finger there and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. This passage, God speaks of his great love for you if you are in Christ. It says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of this world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us in the Beloved, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. As the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you hear Paul? Paul is saying that before this world was ever created, God had set his love upon his children. He had planned for your salvation. He was providing for your salvation, and the Holy Spirit is this great pledge of your salvation. I want you to hear that God's love for you is eternal. When you feel broken, when you feel in despair, when you feel hurt by how other people have treated you, I want you to meditate deeply on the cross work of Christ. I want you to meditate deeply on how much God loves you and continually loves you. This phrase here, I have loved you in the tenses, one tense is past, the other tense is continual. That I have loved you and I will continually love you. I want you to think about this, that Jesus Christ was ultimately rejected by his father so that you will never be rejected by him. His love for you is eternal. His love for you never ends. I love this passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It says, what shall we say then? If God is for us, Who can what? Be against us. I want you to comfort yourself with those words. I want you to comfort yourself in knowing that God is love. He keeps going. He says this. Now, they he's given them this wonderful proclamation of his love, and now we see a shocking reply. Verse 2. His people doubt his love for them. He says, but you say, how have you loved us? I was thinking that when somebody says, I love you, for sometimes when you hear those phrases, what may happen is that you get paralyzed. You're kind of shocked. I can't believe this person just used that phrase. I don't know what to say. I'm kind of paralyzed sometimes. Sometimes when you hear those words, you'll be polite and say, I love you too. No real passion behind it, but you're just repeating the phrase. Other times, you will find yourself passionately saying, I love you. Because you hear those words from them, and you deeply feel love for them, and you say, I love you. Sometimes you're paralyzed. Sometimes you find yourself 
passionately saying these words. Sometimes you're just polite in how you say these words, but sometimes you protest it. I want you to think of a time where somebody has said, I love you, and you protested it. How do you love me? You love me in the way you think about me? You love me in the way you speak to me? You love me in the way you've acted towards me? You don't love me. I wonder what was the heart of the people when they said this. It's a shocking reply. When the God of this universe says, I love you, and you reply or ask the question, how have you loved me? Are you kidding me? Their doubt was apparent. Their doubt of God's love is there. They're uncertain. There's a reservation there. There's a level of mistrust. There's a level of distrust, disbelief, suspicion, skepticism. I hear this in my counseling office often, that that I will pronounce to people that God loves them if they are in Christ, and they will doubt it. And it's quite interesting that in counseling, one of the things we have to be very careful of is that we need to bring law to people. We need to help people to see their sin, but we need to be able to help them to see the Savior more importantly. We want to move them from guilt to grace. We want to move them from their sin to the Savior. And oftentimes, we can begin with this proclamation that God loves his children. But there's a misgiving about it. There's distrust. Have you ever felt that way? They're almost saying to God, prove it to me. There's an indifference. There's an apathy that's there in their life. And it's caused them to drift away from the power of God. They have not seen the greatness of God. They see the greatness of their pain. They see the greatness of their problems. They see the greatness of their struggles and their trials. They do not see the greatness and glory of the God that is with them. Be very careful when you go down that path. Steve Nichols, in his message on this passage, asked whether this is ignorance or arrogance. I'm not sure. Ignorance in the fact that they're unaware of all that God has done for them. Uninformed, they're naive of the love of God. That may be true. Or is this arrogance where there's a hardness of heart, a superiority, a pride, an overconfidence, a self-importance? Or could it be both? As I heard this passage, I put one finger out, but three fingers were pointing back to me. James, do you ever find yourself questioning God? Do you ever find yourself, James, doubting God's love for you? Do you ever find yourself putting God on trial that God needs to prove to me that he is doing right? Do I ever accuse God of wrongdoing? And I I have to tell you, unfortunately, there are too many times that that has occurred in my life. God says, I love you, and we reject it. I want you to see this, number four, a striking rebuttal in verse the end of verse 2. God demonstrates his love to them. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And God uses an interesting thing here. I, it's, he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. What he says, I want you to go back into your history. And if you remember, Esau and Jacob are twins. And these are twin brothers, and Esau is first, he is the oldest, and Jacob is the youngest. And what we find is that God had inverted it. God says the older will serve the younger. And we see these two men, and if you look at these two men's lives, their lives are a mess, to be honest with you. 
Both of them have turned away from God in different ways. Both of them have acted in sinful and wicked and self-absorbed ways. So what is it about Jacob versus Esau? God says, I loved him. I set my love upon him. See, God says, you ask, why have I loved you? And God says, I have loved you because of my love that I've placed upon you sovereignly. I've placed this love upon you graciously, and it is not because of anything in you. It is because of what is in me. I have placed it upon you. See, the problem is is that we have this tendency to look at humanity, and we say that we're good and they're bad. I do not know why it is that God has chosen to bring me into his family and others that I desperately want to see come in, they have not come into the kingdom yet. Is that just because I made a wise choice? No, it's got to be more than that. God opened my eyes to his glory. God changed my heart to his mercy. God gave me a path of change, of hope. Jacob and Esau, these twin brothers, these sinful men, one was chosen and the other one was passed over. The passage that we just read from Ephesians chapter 1 talked about God's choosing love. And what Paul was talking about in that passage was this, that God has acted in such a way that he has placed his grace on one and he's chosen to go over another. The truth that is spoken of in Ephesians and the truth that is spoken of in Malachi is controversial. Many will question it. Some will reject it. God's choosing in his election was manifested in his eternal love for a certain group of people. Some will resist this biblical concept of election and predestination, that God from all of eternity elected some to be saved and chose to pass over others. But I want you to focus on the fact that if you are a believer... You were chosen by God. I want you to pause there deeply for a moment. I want you to pause in the fact that the God of eternity, if you're a believer, chose you. Why? Was it something good that he saw in you or me? No, not at all. The goal of God's choosing you is that you and I get an opportunity to represent salvation, share salvation with others. We get to glorify God. The purpose of why you were born, the purpose of why we live is to mirror God, to reflect God, to reflect his holiness, to reflect his character, to reflect his greatness. We are called to be lights in the darkness. We are called to be a voice of truth in the midst of lies. We are called to be steady, dependable, certain in our lives, unswerving, consistent in the midst of this unstable, erratic, chaotic world. Some people see the choosing and electing work of God as unfair. They see that God can't possibly choose to send some people to an eternity away from him and choose to bring some into eternity with him. And so what they do is they find themselves resisting that process and they believe that it comes down to what we do ourselves. And in doing so, what they've done is, in essence, question his character. They've resisted his authority. I wonder why it is that we have a tendency to magnify humanity's choice and minimize the glory of God. I do not know why. But I will now ask you this on the opposite end. 
Is there any person here that is not guilty and deserving of judgment and separation from God? Is there anyone here that has kept God's law perfectly? No. Is there anyone here that has always had the glory of God hard in their hearts? No. See, some people believe that certain people are good enough to receive God's mercy, but Scripture clearly rejects that. Some people believe that God should save everyone, and I don't know why he did not. But I do know this, that we all deserve judgment, we all deserve wrath, and none of us deserve the forgiveness, freedom, and family that God has given us in Christ. But instead of that, what he's given for some is grace and mercy. See, in God's economy, some people reserve receive justice. In God's economy, other people receive mercy. No one receives injustice. So is there something in us that God has chosen to bring me or you into salvation? No. God's love for us is based on his son and his work in us. I pray that every person that is sitting here will come to a saving faith in Christ. I pray that every single person that hears my voice will bend their knee to the Father. What I tell you is this, that today, if you hear the voice of God... Choose him. Choose to repent. Choose to turn. Choose to trust in Christ alone. If you don't, the responsibility falls upon you. But if you do, it is because God has opened your eyes. In Romans chapter 11, it says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? For who has given him a gift that we might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him all things belong. To him be the glory forever and ever. I want you to know this, that God's love is love for you because he loves you because he is love. Second, I want you to know that God's love for you is a covenantal love. Third, I want you to know that God's love for you is an everlasting love. Fourth, I want you to know that God's love for you is a choosing love. He's chosen you. Maybe people have passed over you in life. Maybe your spouse has passed over you. Maybe your child has passed over you. Maybe friends or family members have passed over you. I want you to go deeply in the fact that the God of the universe has chosen not to pass over you if you're in Christ. Praise him for that. Worship him for that. Glory in him for that. And then be a light in the midst of the darkness. You and I do not know who is going to be passed over. I don't know who in this congregation may be passed over. And I don't know who in this congregation is truly elect. But what I do know is this. I'm called to preach God's word to you. And the Holy Spirit will do a work in your life to draw you to him, to praise him, praise him, praise him. So God begins with telling you that he loves you. They rebut him and say, how have you loved us? He says, I have loved you because I have chosen Jacob. I have chosen to reject Esau. And before you think that Esau is some great guy, I don't want you to miss the fact that Esau hated God. Esau gave up his birthright. Esau went after foreign gods. 
Esau left the land of God. Esau's people, the Edomites, continued to go into wickedness upon wickedness. This is not an innocent man. But to be honest, I'm not an innocent man either. And if God had not done some work in my life, I could be an Esau. And I could be part of the Edomites. This is not a comfortable message for us. But when we magnify the character of God, when we magnify the fact that he is a lover and a hater at the same time, we will see the amazing work of God's grace. In elevating God's love, we're going to diminish God's justice and holiness. In elevating God's justice and holiness, we minimize God's love. God speaks of eternal hell, and I will say this to you, that those who reject God will spend eternity in hell, and they will experience the wrath of God forever. That is a burdensome message to preach, but is the message of the truth of God's word. Unrepentant people will become the object of God's wrath. They will be removed from his grace, and they will receive none of his love. How can we avoid such a terrible judgment? Is there anything that we can do to appease this God? Yes, there is. God's only answer to that question is this. Trust in Christ alone. See, you could be chosen in him. You could find yourself receiving forgiveness and freedom because of the cross work of Christ. You could be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ's work alone. Justified means that you will be declared not guilty before God. You can stand before God as innocent in his sight, in spite of your sin, in spite of your wickedness, in spite of your rebellion, if you bend your knee to Christ alone. Is it because of our character and conduct? No, it is because of the character and conduct of God. Verse 3, he continues and he says this, Esau have I hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, verse 4, we were scattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. They may be called a wicked country and the people whom the Lord will be angry forever. God opposes them. And I will tell you that his opposition of them will not be resisted. They will stay under his judgment. They will be given into wickedness. And God will judge the wickedness of their lives. And he will do that forever and ever and ever. Wow. This is a heavy burden. We love to preach of the love of God, but we struggle with preaching of the justice of God. We struggle with preaching about the fact that some in this congregation, if you do not trust in Christ, you're on a path to destruction. And it is my burden, my hope, that every single person here will come to faith in him. So God has given us this word, and he says in this word that I love you. He gives you steadfast loyalty. In this word, we hear a shocking reply of his people. God's love is rejected and doubted by them. We see this striking rebuttal. God demonstrates his love by choosing some and passing over others. And then he ends with this. He ends with a strong promise, verse 5. Your eyes shall see this. 
and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. So what's God's purpose in revealing all of this news to the Israelites? Was it to show them the greatness of their sin? Yes. Was it to show them their weakness in and of themselves? Yes. To bring them to humility, to help them to see that it is him and him alone that gets the glory. But what he wants to do is this. He wants them to see that God reigns. God's love, God's rule, God's reign is greater than anything in this world. It goes beyond the borders. See, he says that you will see this, your perspective, you will see it. You will get an opportunity to say and proclaim, and you will get the opportunity to praise the greatness of God. Your eyes will see it, and you will say that great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. So James, you're telling me that there's this sober responsibility to preach God's word. Yeah, there is. And you're telling me that God is steadfast in his loyalty to you. He is. God professes his love to his people. And if you are part of God's chosen family, you are loved by him. There's a shocking reply that us we have that we doubt God's word and God's love for us. Be careful if you go down that path. But this is a striking rebuttal. God has demonstrated his love to you in choosing you and passing over others. But there's a strong promise that he tells you. He wants you to see and have a perspective. He wants you to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And he wants you to praise him for who he is. Because none of us deserve eternity with him. There's an instant tendency for us, I'll end with this. When we hear of God's choosing some and passing over others, we have an instant tendency to say it is not fair. I guess I want you to focus on this. If God gave us fairness, none of us would have eternity with him. He gives you grace. And if you're alive today, you have an opportunity to choose him. You have an opportunity to hear God's word today and turn to him. I want to end with this. God says, I love you. It's going to be 400 years after Malachi before the people are going to hear of Christ. 400 years of silence. God promises that he loves you, but then 400 years go by and there's nothing. And the people are going to go into deeper indifference, deeper apathy, deeper resentment. But then, seemingly out of nowhere, we see a son the second person in the Trinity taking on human nature and going into the womb of mom. We see this baby brought before the people and now are, cho- are chosen in him. We see this son growing up to be an obedient man who kept the law perfectly. We see this son going to the cross and becoming our sin bearer and our substitute and our satisfaction. I want you to see that Christ who became your satisfaction at the cross. I want you to also see the certainty of God's love for you. If God sent his son to proclaim his love for you, how much more can he do? What more can he do? The great promise that he's given you in his love. So God is a great lover in the cross. God is a great lover in the certainty he provides for you. But then God is a great lover in the comfort that he wants to share with you today. 
I want you to be assured of this, that if you are in Christ, no matter how dark the day is that you're going through, no matter how deep the trial is that you're enduring, no matter how great the pain is, God loves you. And for those of you that are not in Christ today, I pray that you would hear the warning. I pray that you would hear the warning that God is a God of wrath. God has given you an opportunity today. Will you trust in him? So, Father, I pray today. That you would remind us of the deep, deep love of God. Father, there is a tendency within us to rebel deep in our hearts. When it seems as though we do not have power, we don't. There seems to be a rebellion that happens in our hearts when it seems like a choice is taken away from us. Sin has done that. Father, if we were left in our sin, none of us would have ever chosen you. All of us would have had to be passed over. And all of us would have spent eternity away from you. But Father, it was in your deep love for us, that eternal love, that faithful love, that electing love, and even that love that shows hatred to sin, that drew us to yourself. So, Father, as we hear from Malachi, but more importantly hear from you, help us to begin the proclamation with this, that the God of heaven loves his children. So help that to comfort us today. Help us to enliven us today. Help us to glory in you because of that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Precious in his holy sight 
lost, His promises shall last, bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me This has been Lessons for Life with James Long Jr. We hope you've been blessed. For more information, go to jameslongjr.org.